Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. This is Funny Like a Clown Podcast, episode 81, October 13th, 2020. I'm your host, Dennis Worth. Coming at you live from central Massachusetts, as always, Funny Like a Clown Podcast is brought to you by G Vegas Buffalo Sauce. For the spicy, sweet, savory taste of game time, there's only one G Vegas available at www.gvegas.webs.com. Go there, get it shipped right to your house. Fresh, go green, you're ready for game time. We discuss comedy, and on the phone I have one of the more successful club owners uh, the Boston area has ever seen, Rick Jenkins. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dennis, and I'm from Buffalo, so I love that sauce. Uh, there you go. You know about a good <laughs> Buffalo sauce, don't you, right? That's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess we got to start somewhere. So, I mean, before we get into your club owner days, take us back to the beginning. Uh, how did you start comedy? What gave you the bug to be in the business? Oh, geez, we go all the way back to, uh, I, I'm a lot older than everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I go all the way back to 1979. Well, uh, Lots well, changed since then. I'm sorry? A lot's changed since then, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Drinking age was 18, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took a date to a comedy show, and they sat us in the front row, and I just went nuts. I was just like, oh, wow, this is this is what I want to do. I want to be one of those guys up on stage who, who knows all the angles and, and has everything figured out and uh, controls the room and has all the attention. Right. So uh, I did that, and then uh, started out in Buffalo, so... Like 1980 to 1986, there was a yuck yucks in Buffalo. There were two clubs. If you played one, you weren't allowed to play the other. <laughs> oh, so, like most places, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you knew you were going to have to move at some point. But uh, you know, with yuck yucks there, I was able to open for uh, Sam Kinison and Jay Leno and uh, really? you know a whole bunch of guys. So by the time I moved to Boston uh, in '86, I you know I had enough enough minutes under my belt that I could start in Boston right away as an MC or as a middle. So that yeah, was, Boston's uh, a that, tough that, comedy that scene, yeah. So uh, I thought Yuck Yucks, I thought that was a Canadian-owned company, so there was one in Buffalo. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It still is. It's, uh, yeah, it's a Canadian company. It's a chain across. But uh, back then, the comedy boom was happening, and they were trying to make room into the U.S. So they, uh, trying to they had a club in Buffalo and one in Rochester. I think they might have tried one out in Vancouver. But, uh, yeah, all the Canadian acts started with them. So, you know, I got to work with Norm MacDonald when Norm was a middle act. Well, well, you must have seen a lot on the way up. But you hit one of my soft spots. You mentioned Yopa with Sam Kennison. He's one of my favorite comics. Uh, oh, yeah, Well, what yeah. can you tell no, me about you, Sam? You, you got a memory? That, you did that movie, right? Yeah, I did the short film about him. It's about his life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, he was, uh, I opened for him. And, well, he did a whole tour of Yuck Yucks. Because um, just after the whole uh, crucifixion stunt he, uh, he did in the parking lot there, uh, <laughs> there were there were a lot of clubs that you know wouldn't use him, and he wasn't able to work places. And Yuck Yucks took him in and gave him uh, gave him a bunch of work. So right after that Rodney Dangerfield special, when he blew up, yeah. he went back and did a, a swing for Yuck Yucks again as kind of a 
Thank you. There you go. That's a good thing. Yeah, for All being right. back there. And uh, Buffalo is one of the stops. So, yeah, I got to see Kinnison right at, right at his peak um, in front of, like, 150, 200 people. Yeah. You know, yeah, nice little small room. Something to watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing I remember most about it was, uh, yeah, I don't think it's any secret that uh, Sam enjoyed uh, some illegal substances. <laughs> he liked this and, party. Uh, yeah, and he liked, uh, <laughs> he, he tried to get some in Buffalo, so he went to the uh, local MC who was a, who was a junkie and said, "Hey, here, you know, here's a thousand bucks. Get me, uh, give me some stuff." And the guy ripped him off. <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah. Well, there's a chance you take if you're a junkie, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the funniest part was Kenneth said pacing in the the back kitchen, going like, "Me? He rips off me? What the <laughs> hell's wrong with him?" You don't rip off Sam Kennison, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, what what made you make the move from Buffalo to Boston? Just looking for a new scene, or what was the? Yeah. Well, like I said, you had, uh, you know, there were two clubs. So. Maybe if you could work both clubs and you could do the one-nighters, you might be able to squeak by a living, you know? Right, but, right, uh, right. So. you know, Boston at the time, like, I told my parents I was going to go look at graduate schools. And <laughs> so I went to Boston, New York, and Chicago and went to the comedy scenes at each of them instead of grad schools. And in, you know, in New York, boy, yeah, there, there were a lot of opportunities, but the shows didn't pay anything in town. So you had to make your living on the road. Right. And make your rep in town, or get a day job, and work all night. And I knew I just wasn't built for that. Yeah, and there's and a Chicago, lot more comics in New York than there is in Boston, so it's an easier yeah, scene yeah. to find yeah, opportunity. Chicago was uh, Chicago was all improv at the time, all sketch. Right. And uh, Boston, I had some friends who had started out in Buffalo, Rich Seisler, and uh, you know a few really terrific comics. And when I moved, so I could move to Boston and start making a little bit of money right away. That's part of the game, right there, sure. of the help that, that people gave you but I mean speaking of help you've helped out a lot of young comics yourself you've been you were on the Boston scene for a while I mean you were getting paid and you decided to open up your own comedy place called the comedy studio and mm -hmm. 21 years later uh, it was a successful club but what led to that decision to open your own club well the, basically it was the boom had died you know when uh, Boston goes in generations so you have that thing whole generation of uh, Sweeney, Gavin, Rogerson, you know, these guys who are just hazards, these guys who are just absolute monsters, but because they're the headliners, you know, that next generation coming up has trouble moving up. Right. So you had David Cross, Janine Garofalo, Mark Marin, Louis C.K., all these people at Catch Rising Star who couldn't become headliners because Boston already had their headliners. Right, you're stuck um, at opener, right. Yeah, but my favorite story is Dane Cook. You know, they could get the call and says, "Hey, you know, the headliners can't follow you. You know, they don't want they don't want you middling for them anymore." So Dane figures, "Oh, that means I'm going to be a headliner." And the guy goes, "No, that means you have. Wait, I have to have you open." 
That becomes a problem. You work less, too. Yeah, I mean, if you start getting more laughs than the guy ahead of you, you're going to start working. You think you'd work more, you start working less because they don't want to follow you. Yeah, but if you're in Boston, you've got the headliners. You know, no one's going to leave being disappointed in any of those Boston headliners. Right. You know, so that's when he realized he had to move. So, and they never yeah, retire. We, they did. They stick around till the day they die because it's too fun of yeah. a thing to leave. They never retire. So, yeah. And remember, there's a lot of things built in from a Booker's point of view. Those guys don't. You don't have to pay hotel. You don't have to pay transportation. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know that they're. they're yeah, they're, they're as cheap as the acts can get, and they're as good as any act you can find. They're, you know, they're... so yeah, you you want to keep those guys. Yeah, the local guys, they're going to put the crowds in, and like you said, you don't have to pay the airfare, you don't have to pay the hotels, yeah. you don't have to pay everything to put them up, or a show yeah, like that, it's not as easy to make money. Got credits or whatever, you know, they, they've already got a built-in audience. All right, so, so you open... Then you, you open... Yeah, then you get to the point, you've got like guys like Louie starts going down to New York, Janine Garofalo moves... Uh, take some acting lessons. You know, David Cross uh, moves to L.A. And I just didn't have the money or the guts. So I stayed in Boston and got a day job at the, the Harvard Coop bookstore. The safe move. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, hey, it's not like, uh, you know, not like I had a choice. <laughs> yeah, right, I mean. But you I know, mean... I, yeah, no, no one was banging my door down saying, hey, we want you to headline. Right, right, right. You're not, it's yeah, easier to make that move at 20. When you get a little older, it's not as easy to drop everything and, you know, move to either L.A. or New York, right? Yeah, exactly. So I made that move to Boston back then, and I just didn't really have it in me to do it again. That was your move, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, then that started working out because I was working, you know, 40 hours a week at a bookstore for minimum wage. And uh, a little bar to Hong Kong that me and Tom Brown and a bunch of comedians from Catch Rising Star used to go to after the shows. Turns out Tom, out was a, yeah, <laughs> Tom was really hot for a, one of the waitresses there. Okay. So he would get all the comedians to go with him over to the bar. Uh-huh. So he could hang out with her. Um, and now, you know, 30-some years later, <laughs> they're married and... Uh, Who knew at the started, time, right? Who knew? Yeah, yeah. He and I started doing comedy shows up on the third floor on Sunday night. You know, just to be like, well, you know, I want to keep my hand in comedy. You know, I'll right. take gigs when they come along and maybe do stuff. And because I knew people, you know, the shows were pretty good. Me and Tom were already decent acts. And people like Brian Kiley and DJ Hazard and Tony V would come by and do sets. And new comics were looking for stage time like they always are. Yeah. So it became, you know, that Sunday night became... There's been a lot of other guys who have had the same dream as you to open their own comedy club, and they last three weeks and then fold. What do you think you yeah. did that made you so much more successful than all these other guys who tried? Uh, I think two things. Number one is uh, I, you know, I just I loved it. You know, so there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, oh geez, now we have to deal with the landlord wanting this or we want to do that. Um, and the other thing was that, uh, yeah, it was it was very little risk. I didn't have any money to risk. Right. So the comics, early on, the comics were working for, you know, we were charging $3 at the door, and the comics were getting a percentage of that. <laughs> okay, so you didn't so, think you were a hotshot comic expecting top pay. You realized what the gig actually was and accepted it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we were doing a showcase. We were doing seven-minute sets because my thinking was, that's as long as you can ask someone to work for free. Right, right, right. You know, so if I got 10 people doing seven minutes each for free, I had a show. 
And it's been successful formula for you. It's worked 21 years later. Um, so you started at the Hong Kong. I mean, what, what are some of your favorite memories of doing shows at the Hong Kong for 21 years? Oh, well, we did, yeah, so many. Because like I said, we got, we got that nice reputation. You know, comics talk. Comics know, sure. you know what a good room is. They know, you know what, what management treats you well. They you know, you know, they know all that. So, you know, people start coming by. I think one of my favorites was uh, uh, Brendan Small was a, uh, a comic with us. Now he, he did a cartoon show called uh, Home Movies that went four years on the Cartoon Network. And then he did Metalocalypse, which went forward four years on Adult Swim. But he got discovered at our place as a college kid right. because there was a one night uh, Jonathan Katz and uh, Louis C.K. stopped in to do a set. And Jonathan Katz's assistant producer was with him and saw Brendan and called me the next day. <laughs> he calls me the next day and says, uh, you know, hey, I loved the show last night. So I'm thinking he wants to make a show with me. <laughs> he says, do you have Brendan Small's phone number? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, I hand that out to anybody who wants it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how Brendan got discovered. And they made a cartoon show out of that. So whenever Brendan had a guest star on the show, whether it was, you know, Louis C.K. or Emo Phillips or whoever was guest starring on this show, they would come by after taping and do a set at my place. Well, now you mentioned you've been at it 21 years, and obviously you've had a lot of young college kids and young comics come through, but, I mean, who are some of the bigger names that have gone through your club that have gone on to be huge comics? Uh, well, the people who started from the very beginning with us would be, like, Eugene Merman, Gene from Bob's Burgers, uh, Dan Mintz, who plays Tina on Bob's Burgers. Uh, we actually have, the two of them are coming back to do a, an online show for us. Really? November 5th. You know, yeah. so the, the process continues. Uh Sam Jay, who just started uh, making a whole lot of noise, she just got her own weekly show right. on HBO. So it's going to be like, you know, Dennis Miller, John Oliver, and, you know, the, the, this girl who started out with us. You know? Now, did Dane Cook ever come through your club, or? You know what? No, Dane, the story with Dane was, uh, like I said, we had just started that, those Sunday nights and stuff. Right. And I ran into Dane, and uh, I said, hey, we started this little room if you want to come by and work on, you know, you know, it's, it's nice because it's just a place where comics can work on their own stuff, you know, no pressure or anything. And he said, quite rightly, he said, you know what, I'm getting paid, you know, to do an hour. If I want to do new stuff, I'll stick the 10 minutes in the middle of the set I'm getting paid for. Right. So I said, well, yeah, I can't really argue with that, you know. It's, it's good theory, sure. But, I mean, didn't Sarah Silverman start there? Or not start, but, I mean, came through your club? Yeah, not so was she. Again, Jonathan Katz, who he had, that showed Dr. Katz. Right. Uh, which had all the comics on. He calls me one day and says, uh, hey, I'm going to be on the Letterman show next week. Can I come in and you ask me the question so I can practice giving the answers? So I go, like, oh, wow, that's great. And he says, oh, yeah, and a friend of mine, um, is a her mom has never seen her perform live before. So could she, uh, could she do a set so that her mom could come and see her? I said, yeah, sure. And it was Sarah Silverman. So... Oh. So Sarah, yeah, so Sarah played the club when, uh, you know, for her mom, and it happened to be a night when we had comedians go up for their first time. Right. Called it Sacrificing Virgins. Oh. And the comedian on before her was named uh, Baratunde Thurston, and he's now, he's now huge. He's got the podcast, and he's on CNN and everything, very political comedian uh, and activist, but, uh, and he's black. And Sarah did that joke she has about, uh, I tried to give a 
my boyfriend was black, I tried to give him a compliment. I said, you'd be a really expensive slave. <laughs> and he gets all upset. And then Baratunde goes on after her and opens with, first time ever on stage, he opens with, Sarah, you couldn't afford me. We, we can take a joke like that at our age. Now, comedy's taking a turn where everything's offensive. It's tough to even do it anymore. Even Bill Burr was on Saturday Night Live this weekend, and he's catching some heat for being risky. So what's your opinion yeah. on being risky? Yeah, I saw that set. I don't know what, what you think. I, for me, hey, that's Bill. Anytime yeah, you see Bill, I that's mean, what he does. That, that's the set he does. Not everybody was expecting it, though. You know, if you tuned in to see Bill Burr, you expected it. If you were just tuning in Saturday Night Live because you like comedy, then... But I don't know who doesn't know Bill Burr at this point, but I guess <laughs> I guess the kids liked it, yeah. their parents not so much possibly, but um Well there's also the setback that that's not really Bill's strong suit, you know, going up and doing like a tight five, a tight seven. Right, right. You know, so yeah, if you don't know him, yeah, you might not know him. You know, if just you if your comedy is, you know, the late night shows and stuff. You know, he's he's on coded some, but right. uh, you know, he doesn't really fit in well yeah, to uh that's, that's not his mecca, but uh, shows. Well, you mentioned the late night shows, and uh, years and years ago when I started out comedy, I did come up to your room and I tried it out. You treated me very fairly. I thank you for that right off the bat. But uh, I know one of the things you mentioned to the comics when you were there, that your club is a club that wants to get comics ready for television, where it's not a, you know, it's not a blue-collar club where, you know, mm -hmm. so well, what do you do to get, get, get kids ready for TV and... Uh, one of the big rumors, and you can put an end to this rumor whether it's true or not, if you if you want to appear on Conan O'Brien, that you're the guy's club to go do to get it done. Is that true? or? Um, to some extent, not as much anymore. Okay. It used to be, because uh, Brian Kiley, who's been writing Conan's monologue since the beginning, um, he was splitting his time. He was living up in Boston and writing for Conan down in New York. So he would come up every weekend practice his stuff at my club, and then go down to Conan's office and say, hey, I saw this person up there that's really good. Uh-huh. You know, so we had every week, we had somebody with Conan's ear right. hearing about what was up here. What was going on. So, okay. yeah, so we still got, and same with Fallon, you know, we know people who are on the staff, you know, so. Okay. You know, so what's the difference really between getting a comic ready for TV it. and getting a comic ready for, like, to be a road comic? What would you consider the difference between getting getting the two ready? You know, I think the difference is uh, getting the audience's attention and what are you going to do with it. When you're on the road, you've got to get the audience's attention. You know, everyone is, is you know, they're eating, they're looking at the TV, they're talking, and they're, they don't know who you are. They expect a comedian. Right. So the closer you are to what they think a comedian is, the better you're going to do. So you got to get their attention, you, you got to let them know what's happening, and get them on your side. Whereas for television... You've already got their attention. Now you've got to give them something different, something that they're not going to get somewhere else. Right. So in some way, playing a club means, you know, being a being a comedian, and being on television means being that guy. You know, they, there's only one Bill Burr. Because you're know? giving you something different. They don't want to hear about your trip to the donut shop. It's been done a thousand times. They want they're looking for something different, right on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to see, you know, what the I mean, Burr's a bad example because he plays both really well. Right. But, um, yeah, you know, Eugene Merman, um, you know, any of these people that, uh, you know, Norm MacDonald. Well, you think, you know, Stephen Wright is one of the old Ding Ho guys. Right. You know, and he was working all over New England as a middle because, you know, you put Stephen Wright in a bar where nobody knows who yeah. he is or 
You when don't he have full it. attention, right? Yeah. Another guy who started out with us is Joe Wong. Uh, he got discovered at our place, got on Letterman. Letterman loved him, gave him a sitcom deal. He got on Ellen through that. He got on the White House Correspondence Center. Through that, the people in China saw him and gave him his own TV show. So he's had his own 8 o'clock television show for the past eight years. Yeah, he was traveling for a while doing, like, nationwide tours, I remember. Yeah, yeah, so he's probably the biggest star, you know, to come out of certainly my place, maybe in the country, because there's a billion people who have him on television every day at 8 o'clock. And Joe worked clean, too. And, you know, know, these kids Mm -hmm. see Bill Burr on Saturday Night Live, and they're all want to be dirty like Bill Burr. And you know as well as I do, if you work clean, you work a lot more in this business, so... Do you, yeah. do, you, do you encourage the comics in your club to work clean, or do you put up with some blue material, or what's it like when you when you go up to the comedy studio? Yeah, I mean, I put up with it. Like I said, a lot of uh, a lot of comics, uh, Shane Moss, Louie, you know, they're you know they're as dirty as you get. Right. Um, I think the the difference is when you start out, you are a lot like whoever you like. You know, if you're a big Burr fan or a big uh, right. Kinnison fan, you're going to be doing that yeah, guy. Right, yeah. And it takes you a while to learn the basics of comedy and everything so that you start doing you. Well, I remember Shane Moss, you mentioned, wasn't he our last comic standing? And he almost threw the crowd and the judges in a shock with what he was doing. It was like, oh, yeah. I was, yeah, I was yeah, watching it. I'm like, oh, they don't get it, man. They don't get it. Yeah, well, and he did, uh, he did Conan. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was he almost like Carlin or Pryor in that he was a really good joke writer, really good comedian, got some success and started saying, hey, you know what, I... Yeah, I'm gonna go my own route, you know. And now he's got the you know, the longer hair, and he's touring, doing uh, shows about the uh, uh, hallucinogenics. Right, right, right. He's one of sort of dealing a lot with guys. the scientists and all that sort of stuff, and doing his own thing. All right. So you've run for 21 years the comedy studio at the Hong Kong and Cambridge. Uh, things are going well. You've worked hard. You've beat out a lot of other guys that tried to open clubs that weren't successful, and you were. And then all of a sudden, you made the move over to Somerville. What, what prompted that move, and how's it gone for you? Well, hey, COVID. Yeah, COVID uh, sort of puts the, uh, <laughs> puts the little dot, dot, dot after anything. Put the stop uh, on everyone there, did <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so it got, you know, the Hong Kong, we got to that point where we were doing, we were renting the space, so we could only fit 75 people, and we could only do one show a night. We only had the room from 7 o'clock until 10 o'clock. Right. So it was like, you know, we were kind of bumping up against that, and then the landlord decided to raise the rent. That'll do it. Yeah, and so I was like, well, you know, unless we charge $40 a ticket, well, we're not even going to be able to tread water. Right. So we realized we had to leave. And uh, Well, I mean, you left before the COVID hit. I mean, you had to be worried. Are my, you know, patrons going to follow me over? I mean, the comics are always looking for stage time, but... How many are yeah. going to follow me? I mean, how did the move go before COVID hit for you? Yeah, pretty well, because we were in, we went to 100 seats, and we were able to do two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. And, of course, my heart is in, you know, with the new comic. So we were able to do an open mic where we would do 60 to 70 comedians on a Tuesday night. Right. So to have that space ourselves where... You know, we could have mean, someone did, come in and record Did your patrons an follow you over there? Yeah. A lot of your regular crowd, did they follow you? Yeah, yeah. It's just, like I said, if we had a regular crowd of, uh, you know, say 40 people yeah. of the 75, those 40 follow you. Now they're only 40 of 100. Okay. You know, so, yeah, so everybody followed us. It's just we also, we also built a, a lot more people 
just by being virtual being bigger. Right, you, you open know? up and a being door able to call in some of those names, you know, call in some of those favors and say, you know, hey, Mike Kaplan, you know, you start, you only got into comedy because we were there. You know, or Colin yeah, Young. Now we need you to be there for us. Or, right, you know, yeah. Yeah, because that was the other thing we had at Harvard, at uh, Hong Kong, that we don't have here, is we were right across the street from Harvard. So people like B.J. Novak and Colin Yost and Dan Mint, you know, they were Harvard kids who right. would just walk across the street and do a set. Right, well, if you're out in the suburbs, you're probably getting people in their 50s and 60s that are going to a comedy show, where if you're up there in the big city, I mean, probably the young kids are mostly your crowd, right? Yeah, the yeah, college exactly. kids and stuff, yeah, so, right? yeah, so that was definitely uh, something, you know, we're always working with. I mean, we're not in the suburbs, we're in Somerville, right. so it's still, you know, it's a couple blocks away, it's still hipster world, you know, but, uh, right. yeah, well, that's, well, I mean, that's why you've never seen any of the big chains come into Boston, because the big chains all build their audiences around that suburban couple, and most of them look at needing one parking spot for every two seats they have. Right. And you are not going to, you know, if you want 300 seats, you're not going to find uh, any place that's got 150 parking spaces. Up in Boston, right? Yeah. Space is too tight, yeah. Yeah, so that's why all the, the big chains have never come into Boston. It's like, well, they can't compete with the talent because they got to bring in their talent. Right. And, you know, they, they can't build a, the room that they want to to get their audience to come in. Now, with the young college kids, it's probably easier to do blue material in your room because they're accepting of it, where if you come out, I mean, I'm in Central Mass, I'm in the suburbs here, I do successful shows, but it's mostly people in their 50s and 60s. I bring a young kid and he starts going off like Bill Burr, my crowd ain't coming anymore, so it's not as easy for me, so. Yeah, yeah, well, we had, um, give you an idea of the, the uh, you know, political correctness of, where, uh, um, Joe Rogan is an old friend, you know, I started out with Joe. And he came in and did a set, and he got heckled because he was using, you know, you know the, the F word. Really? Um, well, for, <laughs> about gays. <laughs> oh, well, that'll <laughs> do it. <laughs> you know, and yeah, and there was someone who was gay in the audience and saying, hey, you know, that's, uh, you know, that, that's outdated. That's, you know. You're triggering me, that's right. old, Yeah, that's old school. Um, you know, you're on the wrong side of history, which is a good point, but. He's still you know, Joe Rogan, time, yeah, you kind of. You know, yeah, let's, you know. He is who he uh, is, so, right, you know. Yeah, so my, and that, you also get Seinfeld and Chris Rock saying they don't want to play colleges because of the young kids. You know, I don't think it's really, I don't think it's the material so much as who it's coming from. You know, I mean, you got an audience that's 50 or 60, they do not mind hearing a comic my age or your age talking about their prostate exam or, right, you know, right. having, having a big, uh, having a big tube shoved up their ass. Stay you true know, to who you are. Someone, yeah, it's someone their age that know it. I think they can the relate thing to with it, college right, right. kids. Yeah, same thing with college kids. You know, if you're if you're in college, you want to hear about jerking off and getting high. Right, right, right. And the last thing you want is someone your parents' age talking about jerking off and getting high. <laughs> you can't relate to that. You want to stick to yeah. what you can relate. Well, they call yeah. that reading your audience before you go in, know what material you know you're gonna do based on your audience, right? Yeah, exactly. Same material. You know, same material from different audiences work different ways. I mean, you know. You know, I mean, you've been in the restaurant business forever. You know, if you know everyone in the audience goes to restaurants or knows food or whatever, I mean, you pitch your show to the Food Network. That was very different than the show you would pitch to ESPN or right. NBC. We tried, you know, yeah. They Actually, they told us, like, the average person, you know, if they want to watch comedy, they go to Comedy Central. They're not tuning in the food work to, to watch comedy. That was kind of... 
They didn't think it was appealing to their crowd. Where I thought it was different to me, it was like, well, it's different. A lot of people have thought of it, but I'm doing it. But, uh... Yeah. It was a yeah, fun well, run. It was fun. Yeah, that's why nobody knows what they want until they see it. <laughs> yeah, you never know what's going to take off. All right, so you were at the Hong Kong in uh, Cambridge for years. You, you moved over to Somerville. Uh, you were even, sounds like, more successful over there because you opened up your audience. And then, boom, as you mentioned, COVID hits. What's been the state of comedy for you since that hit? Uh, well, yeah, you just keep, uh, the, the, pro the biggest problem with COVID is that you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know how things are going to change. You know, every day the governor comes out and says, well, you can do this, you can't do that. Right. So you're changing your plans every day. Um, what we decided to do was we kept everybody, we kept our staff, and we just used them to set up a, an online network. So now we're doing eight shows a week online. Okay. So you're not doing any live shows at the club at this point? You, know, you can't work around yeah, the no, rules? We, yeah, we, no, we can't. We okay. can't. And in fact, Somerville is behind uh, the rest of the state. We can't even do outdoor shows. Mike Birbiglia called us and said, hey, I'll, you know, I'll do something in your courtyard to help you out. And the city said, you know, no, you can't. Uh, you know, really? We're not going to allow entertainment gatherings. So that's a so, city law, because, I mean, the state would allow that, because I know some of the places were doing that in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so your hands are really tight. It. Yeah, Mike Clark is doing a good job up at Giggles, where they set up a tent in the Under the big lot. top, yeah. So they're technically outside. Okay. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I know yeah, the, so the laws have changed somewhat. I mean, you could have, I think it was 25 people. I know in the restaurant I can have 25 people in, but at 25 guests, you're not getting much laughs, you're not getting much money, right? Right, and there's also the question of, you know, how, how much space do you have? Because those, those 25 have to be distanced. Exactly, yeah. So if they're six feet apart, that means you need, you know, a couple hundred square feet just for the audience. And then the question is, do you count the staff? Right. You know, if you got two or three waitresses, a bartender, and yourself, and four comics, <laughs> you're pretty close to your limit. Yeah, yeah, you're down to just your staff. You're down to about the limit already before you get any guests in. So, I mean, you can't make any money. And in comedy, you want people right on top of you. The laughter carries. And if they're six feet apart, there's not much laughter to carry. Yeah, exactly. And that's what these shows, you know, in drive-ins and uh, parks. In New York, there's a lot of shows in parks and on rooftops. Have you done any of those where, where the the people sit in their car and, like, the new laughter is they beep their horn if they like your joke? Have you done any of those? Or? Yeah, no, I haven't done any of them. Uh, from every comic I hear, they're better than you would think. Really? You know, the, yeah, the comics are like, boy, it just feels good to be out there on stage and, you know, in front of people. You miss but, it, yeah, that's someone, for sure. If yeah. someone honks their horn, you don't know if they're heckling you or applauding you. <laughs> One or the other, right? Yeah. Um. All right, I mean... In, in your opinion, what, what what do you see the future, well, what's it going to be? Like you said, we don't know when it's going to be over, so, I mean, do you think online is going to be the new thing for comedy, or? Um, I think we're always going to have some sort of online presence. Um, I've been doing the shows, uh, the Zoom shows. You know, boy, that, for me, it's like the cross between an in-person show and a television show that I always wanted. You know, so right. Joe Wong called us from China and did a set. Really? So we can yeah. Get yeah, we can get comments from all over. We've got audience from... China, from Vancouver, from whatever. Oh, yeah. So I think that's going to be it's going to be around. But yeah, the the live shows I think are going to slowly get back to where they were. It's not going to be a switch. It's not going to be like hey, you know, there's back to normal, people right? Yeah. Fit in again. You know, it's probably going to be okay. You can do half capacity. You know, with the comic, you know, twelve feet away from the audience, or right. you know, they'll slowly move that sort of thing. 
So what kind but, of crowds uh, are you getting online? Are you getting good crowds online? I mean, or is it not yeah, what it used to be? Yeah, we're, yeah, we're doing decent. Uh, we're uh, not to the point yet where we're breaking even. Because like I said, we have our staff. You know, I'm trying to keep the staff on payroll. Right. You know, you don't want to let people go during the pandemic. Yeah, you're going to need them when you come back. Who knows when that is? But, yeah, you got to take care of your staff. Yeah. But. yeah, yeah. So we're building that. And, uh, yeah, and you're wait, you know, you hope the government... Uh, comes up with another stimulus that that payroll protection plan is what was able to keep us open in the first place. Right. I belong to a group called Diva, which is the national uh, independent venues. So it's all the small rock clubs and you know and comedy okay. clubs and stuff. Uh, and they're uh, they're lobbying Congress, and they're they're going to have Reggie Watts is going to host a big weekend long uh, benefit for us uh, online. And, uh, yeah, so it's a lot of these little small things. 90% of these small independent venues are not going to reopen. Oh, yeah, a lot are going to go out. Oh, definitely. A lot of comedy clubs aren't going to come back from this, no. Yeah, comedy and those small rock clubs, you know. The rocks, you know, 40, 50. When you got the Iron Horse out there, you know, those places are, uh... The Foxwoods and Mohegans, they're not going to be hurt by this. A little guy like you and me, this this is not easy, yeah. Right, yeah. And again, the Mohicans—they don't spend their money on, uh, you know, on comedy. They—they they make it on the gambling. Right, right, right. You know, so, so there's um, gonna be, a, yeah, there's gonna be a little less money in it, you know. Uh, oh yeah, everybody's taking a pay cut if you want to perform because you can't make any money, you can't have big crowds anymore. So if you want to perform, it's less money. And if you don't, then sit home and do nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing I found interesting is like the the people who were open micers when this started are online they're going into parks they're doing backyard shows it's the uh they're getting creative the yeah the headliners are doing the headliners are doing fine because they got their money pat Oswalt's not gonna have a problem you know right. and the open micers you know they already had day jobs or something it's the uh it's all up middle acts that have to struggle a little struggle, bit you know, yeah. all, all so, the I mean, acts that were counted on this three Two, three $300 a week. So, I mean, the loan you got or whatever you did there, you mentioned, you know, helping out the small business guys like you. Is that how you paid the rent to keep a place open until you get back, or? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in that I got a, I got a great deal with the uh, landlord, which I, at the time I thought sucked, was uh, I said, okay, I'll give you the bar, I'll take the room and not pay any rent. So I only made my money on the tickets. Right. Well, a lot but of places are like a, that, yeah. Yeah, now that's a great deal because, I don't have any rent. That worked out for you. There you go, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the landlord's not happy, you know, because he's just sitting there on an empty space and not serving any drinks. Well, yeah. Most people realize what's going on. The landlord sees what's happening. He's not blind to it, so. Yeah. Yeah. And it puts me in the the position when this is all over, you know, how many places are going to be open looking for something to do? Oh, yeah, I mean, well, even when they do say you come back, just because they say you come back, people may still be sketchy about coming out. I mean... Just because yeah. they tell you you can do it, don't mean they're going to want to do it, you know? Yeah, when this first started, we sent out a thing to all of us. Yeah, and I encourage you, uh, make sure I have your email address. Uh, I sent out a weekly newsletter with what's happening in the club and on the scene. And we sent out like a survey, basically, and said, hey, if we can do shows, would you come to them? Right. And most people said, yeah, I would come to see an outdoor show. I don't think I'd come to see an indoor show. They're not ready for that yet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so tough for you because you can't do them, outdoor even shows. Even if you have, even if you can do a show, sh- and should you? Yeah, that's you know, the question. Just because you can, you know, don't mean you should, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, and are you risking your fans' health? Yeah, you're being responsible, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, just so the listeners know, 
said Dale Hughley in, uh, I think it was Zanies in Nashville, you know, goes on stage, passes out, and it turns out he had COVID. And all of a sudden, everyone everyone who was at the show had to get tested. They're at risk all of a sudden. Yeah, it's yeah. a dangerous thing. So if people wanted to tune in your online thing for the listeners, tell them how would they go about tuning in the Comedy Studio yeah, online. Can, yeah, you can just find all of our stuff through our website. That's thecomedystudio.com. Okay. And the shows during the week are all free. Kathy Ferris, and we have a different show every night. And then the weekend shows I host with uh, like five different acts doing 10 minutes each from uh, all over the country. Okay, so it's thecomedystudio.com is what it is? Yeah. And yeah. can they can they yeah. sign up there to get on your email list if they went to that, that website? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or email me directly. It's just rick.jenkins at thecomedystudio.com. Okay. So so yeah. you're sending out emails. You're letting the people know, you know, this is what's going on with comedy. This is what we're doing. This is what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Now, yeah, do you charge exactly. to get on these online shows or... Yeah, just uh, uh, send anything to a booking at thecomedystudio.com. I mean, now are you are you able to charge as much for tickets to see the online show as at your club, or are you taking less money? Yeah, not you? as much. We're done, um, you're always playing around with it, but right now what we're doing is Friday, Saturday, Sunday shows. We're doing ten dollars a ticket. Okay. And uh, a place to to tip that all the tips go to the comics, and the comics get I think like half. The, the comics get a percentage of the tickets and all of the tips. Okay, so that's a good way. So to right. Do it. Yeah, so right now we're able to pay comics, we're able to pay staff. Um, you know, how long we're going to be able to do that is just a question of how many people uh, actually tune in and kick in their 10 bucks. Yeah, it's a tougher scene on the internet because anybody can be on the internet where you mention the big clubs ain't coming into Boston because they can't make it work, where anybody can be on, so it's getting a little saturated where everybody's doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're competing with everything. We're doing our shows live, figuring, well, that way, you know, that way no one can steal the comics material. You know, you, you have to make an appointment for it. But on the other hand, you know, boy, anyone can be watching anything in the world at 8 o'clock on a Saturday. Well, that's the way I lucked out with the podcast. I was doing this a long time before the COVID hit, so I hit it before everybody was doing it, so I was able to stick around. But uh, yeah, I actually yeah, found... I'm a, I'm, yeah, I'm a fan. I've been watching that. That, uh, that episode of Joey was really great. Yeah, I found out 5% of true. my listener base is in Israel. And I'm just saying, who is listening to me in <laughs> Israel? I got, well, thank you to my Israel listeners. I do appreciate it anyway. All right. Well, boy, you know, Israel, interesting. Um, another guy who started out with us, uh, Alex Edelman, uh, He did when he did his year in Israel, uh, his Jewish uh, birthright year, he started a comedy club in Jerusalem. Really? Yeah, because he was such a comedy fan. So he found a little basement and started doing a comedy show in Israel. And would call me from Israel saying, hey, I just had an Arab heckle, a Jew. How do I handle it? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Good <laughs> question, right? Yeah. So was it successful? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's way past my pay grade. Well, I saw a but, thing that Gabriel Iglesias, he got paid big money to go over to the Middle East, and he was scared about doing it. He's like, oh, his agent called him. He's like, give him a ridiculous number. They'll never... Well, they ended up paying them to get over there, and they said that's how they're bringing pieces through comedy over there. That it's becoming a big thing, comedy over there. Yeah, yeah, I know a lot of them. Um, Abu Dhabi, uh, Dwayne Perkins just started out with us. Uh, plays out there a lot. A lot of comics. Yeah, I mean, they don't like to make a big deal of it because you know, then you get, you know, oh, you're playing for the Arabs, and you know, you know, does that affect your, your the Jewish thing? And you know, you know, uh, the the government is oppressive or whatever, and you yeah. know. You open a big can of worms, but uh, yeah, there's there's work there. What I loved about Joey was um, I didn't realize he was the uh, we're talking about um, uh, uh, what's the um, 
Joey Delabay. Um, he was the comic who was headlining Johnson and Wales when uh, Dan Kino was middling. Right. Johnson and Wales was a college. Dan Kino was a, a middle act, but just crushing it. And one night at Johnson and Wales College gig, C.J. Thibodeau, another comic from Rhode Island, slips in, watches the show, and finds Dan Kino doing all the Boston act material. So that's how. Ooh. Uh, yeah, that's a legendary story. Of, you know, <laughs> that's big no-no in comedy. That, yeah, that comic showed up at Kevin Knox's open mic the following Monday, and every headliner in Boston was waiting for him. Didn't go well, I imagine. Did. Yeah. Yeah, just, just like uh, Goodfellas or uh, Ron yeah. It's been like, going on in comedy for years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, r- no rumor has it allegedly Robin Williams got his ass kicked a few times at the comedy store for for stealing jokes. So it's it's not unheard yeah. of. But, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's still yeah, a shitty uh, thing to do, though. <laughs> it really is, yeah. yeah. All right, well. Uh, yeah, I, and, you know, and, and Robin's defense, you know, I mean, a lot of guys work like that, that they're working so fast off the top of their head. You know, that it's like, you know, someone tells you, hey, stretch right now, do 10 minutes right now, and you've already done all your material, yeah, you're going to think of a joke that, you know, somebody told you at a bar yeah, or, right. you know. Well, I heard he'd take a joke that wasn't so funny, take the premise, and he'd make it hilarious. He'd actually improve on the joke, you know? Like, well, that ain't that yeah. funny, but I can make it funny, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing with him was he actually lost the lawsuit. Well, not, he settled a lawsuit because Reality What a Concept was a, a joke of another comics. Okay. And they were, they were able to show that this comic had been doing that line for a long time. Right. And Robin named his album it. So there was a while there where you could just call Robin's office and say, I think he did my joke. And they go, oh, well, here's a couple hundred bucks. So how did the lawsuit go? Uh, I think they ended up settling for like, you know, uh, $20,000 oh, okay. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matter. I mean, it was a million selling album. Right, right, right. But, you know, and that's the thing. The, the stealing, you know, it ends up hurting you because you're doing it in somebody else's timing and someone else's material. And you don't, you don't develop your own thing. Right. So yeah, you're you're gonna be able to kill in a road room where you're making seventy five bucks, but you know why would uh why risk why would it? Anyone right? on TV get you to do Jerry Seinfeld's material when they can get Jerry Seinfeld? Get Jerry Seinfeld, right? Okay. All right. So here's one of the big questions I did want to ask you when I got you on here because I mean I book shows out in Central Mass and you know like I said you've been successful I've been successful out here and if you're successful you do it's something to be proud of but uh. You, you know, you work with a lot of the young college kids. Uh, well, what's the most rewarding thing that you find helping out the next generation of comics when you're dealing with the young kids? What's the most rewarding thing for you? Well, being there when, when they break. You know, like uh, Sam J just, uh, you know, got, her, got a job writing on SNL and then got a job, uh, you know, got her HBO or Netflix special and now she's got an HBO show. Um, that, that first time or two that they're doing national TV, it's really great, but you know, I can't take any credit for it. The way I always think of it is I have the keys to the gym. Whoever shows up and works the hardest <laughs> is going to be the strongest. Right, right. That's a good you one. Know, I'm, not, I'm not lifting any weights for them. I'm not designing workout routines. I'm just there to open the door and say, hey, here's a stage. Here's an audience. You, know, you, you make of it what you can. You work as hard as you want. It's up to you, right? Yeah, because I played all those Western mass rooms, you know, from maybe, what, 86 to 92? Yeah. You know, I jayed at Pittsfield, and, uh, you know, yeah, I, a couple times, hitting that uh, that second exit. If you miss that exit to Pittsfield,
trouble. <laughs> but I've, I've told that to a lot of young comics. Like, what do you do to be successful? It's like, it's not that I'm funnier than everybody. I, I outwork everybody. I'm just sitting by the phone. I'm not making stuff happen. you got to outwork people. Yeah, yeah. I really believe, and I think it's threefold. Um, comedy, anyway, well, life is, you know, yeah, a third is talent, a third is luck, and a third is hard work. And you know what? You only got control over one of those. Right. You know, how how hard you're working is the only thing you can control, how much talent you've been born with and who happens to be where, when. But, yeah, if you do 100 gigs, you've got a much better shot of getting something than somebody who does three. Yeah. Well, I've always said there's three sides of comedy. There's the business side, the political side, and the being funny side. And you think the being funny would be first, and it's probably dead last, in my opinion. I mean, you got to pay your dues. It's a lot of who you know. It's a lot of opportunities. But you got to work hard no matter what you do, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true, but uh, I, I think that the being funny is the, the most important part. The difference is there's a big scale of being funny, anywhere from 1 to 10, whereas with the business and the political, you can get by just on the basics. Right. You know, as long as you're paying your bills, as long as you can afford, like said, Louis and those kids, uh, Marin, they would drive down to New York on a Monday night, probably not get on stage, and drive back. But they were there, they were learning from Attell, they were learning from these acts, right. they were learning comedy, they were showing their face at the club, they'd eventually get in. Whereas I stayed up here and said, no, I'm not going to spend the money driving all the way down to New York and back and maybe not get on stage. I'll sit at the Comedy Connection and watch their open mic. Right. So I ended up learning how an open mic was run. I ended up learning how a room was run. You know, they ended up learning how to run a career. So oh. you make those choices all the time without realizing it. Yeah, it's a win-win. All right, so I asked that question to lead into this question. Now, I book a lot of shows out here in Central Mass, and I get a lot of these young comics. They think I'm cutting them a break, and I'm getting them some stage time so they can learn their craft and get better. And instead of appreciating it, they, they want to tell you how to run your club. They want to tell you how to do comedy, and they're just getting started out, and you've been at it a while. So what is the most frustrating part about dealing with the young comics to you? Um... Well, the business side, you know, dealing with the owners is probably more, much more difficult. You know, it's like you know, when they're saying like, oh, this is a check, don't cash it for two weeks. And you got the comic saying, you know, hey, I need my money Where's tonight my because money, I got right? rent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think maybe because I've been around so long, uh, would comics have a problem with me? Rarely do they let me know. They've never told um, you, hey, this is what you should be doing with your club. And you're like. Then you're kind of yeah, like, well, I mean, you're hitting open I, mics. Who are you to tell me what to do? I've been successful 21 years, you know? Yeah, I get that, but I see a lot of it as a suggestion, you know, and I stay way open to it because if you're a college kid telling me what you think the show should be like, hey, that's kind of what your friends want the show to be like, and I want to get your friends in here. Right. You know, so when they say, you know, you know, oh, you should do, uh, you know, you should go online or whatever, I take it, you know, I take it that way from everybody, you know, everyone, it's just a suggestion, you know, you, you only short yourself if you don't take the suggestion. Try to keep you an open mind, right? Like, you know what, yeah, you're wrong, I've been doing a show here, you know, I've been doing a show here forever, I mean, one thing that keeps coming up is people are always saying, hey, you should do headliners, right. you know, you should bring in a headliner, you pay a headliner a certain amount, and they bring in a certain amount of audience, and the place is filled and everything, you know, Every time someone suggests it, yeah, I think it over. But right now, you know, the, the format I've been using for the last 20 years, I kind of like. And the other reason I like it is because I'm still able to book myself. Well, you still got guys like Chance Lang that will come up there and stuff. He's like a Boston legend, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll come by. Chance will come by. You know, once a month or so, and do you know do ten, twenty. But that's the thing. You know, when uh, you know when anyone comes in, any big name comes in, you know they're doing ten minute set. You know, just uh, just just like everybody else. Yes, sir. Um, right. Again, because I can't really afford to pay any of those guys what they're worth. Yeah, forty five minutes, one hour set, right? Yeah, if I'm only getting the door and I'm charging ten dollars a piece. That's the other thing. I try to keep the price really low. So that those new young people who are into comedy can afford it. Before the college students don't have a lot of money to begin with, right? Yeah, yeah. If I got an audience of twenty people paying ten dollars each, yeah, I can't afford. So a, no, I mean the veteran yeah, comics get that. If you, if you if you say that to a veteran comic, they're gonna understand. All right, Rick, I get what you're saying. But these young kids, where they think they're worth headliner money, just starting out at open mics. So what do you tell them? You know what I tell them is when you bring in that much, you can get that much. Right. <laughs> because at the level we're at, how good you are is just, it just makes the show better. It doesn't really matter. Let's say it doesn't really matter to me whether I book a middle or a headliner. No one is gonna, in the room is going to leave saying, oh, I didn't like that. You know? So yeah. you've got to be either so much better that everyone leaves going, wow, that was great. I want to come back. Or people have to know you and say, I'm going to that show because that guy is here. Right. That's you what I tell them, yeah. Bit, you put your name yeah, on the billboard and people are buying tickets, you deserve to get paid. If they're not buying tickets, maybe you're not as hot a comic as you think you are, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you need me, then, you know, there's no reason for me to, to pay you, you know, extra money. Right. You know, just because, just because you, even if you are better, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me to give you more money. Now, if people are coming to see you because it's you, which is what started happening with Dane Cook or, or, uh, Anthony Clark, you know, all of a sudden you saw, hey, if I book him, I'm going to get 20 extra people in the audience. That's yeah, now money, I'm right. going to pay him some money. Bob yeah, Marley yeah. up in Maine, you know, boy, you know, he has such a fan base that the old comedy connection eventually gave him a piece of the club. He's earned so, it, hey, right? If you, yeah, if you play, yeah, if you play here exclusively, you know, we'll cut you an ownership stake. They did that with Anthony Clark yeah, at the yeah, connection. Well, a lot of the young comics, they, they think they're the next Bill Burr, but they're actually not. And it's tough to convince them of that, I find. It's like, you know. Yeah. You, well, you know what? You can let those people know. I started out with Bill Burr. We all started out, you know, Burr. We started out with all those guys. You know, they weren't, they weren't that at the beginning. Right. You know, there, there were times, you know, Louis would open for me or David Cross or somebody. You know, they were they were just like everybody else saying, "Hey, I'm I'm good. How come I'm not getting headliner money?" Because right. well, you know, you're you're getting the stage time to become a headliner, but nobody's paying extra money, you know, to see you. Nobody wants to earn it. Nobody wants to work for it. They think they're entitled nowadays. Is am you? Know, I'm entitled. It's please and thank you has become you owe me and I'm entitled nowadays. I found. Yeah, yeah. The question is, what are you bringing to the table? What what are you doing to deserve that extra money? Right, right. Put the question back yeah, you on think, you, Yeah, you think you owe it? You, know, you think I should pay you an extra fifty dollars? Okay, where's that fifty coming from? Yeah, yeah. What are you doing to earn that extra fifty, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah, so the way, the way we have our show structured is coming out of my pocket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can only pay so much. You only make so much. You can't give out more than you make, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we set around an hour for the podcast, and we're approaching that. So we've talked about how you started out in comedy. We talked about your club. You moved the state with COVID. What you done? Yeah. I guess the only thing left is uh, where are you going? Is there anything left on your bucket list in comedy you want to accomplish before your days are up in the comedy scene, or what's in the future for you in the comedy studio? You know, the the COVID I think for me and everybody has been a really great like reset. 
you know, all of a sudden I'm sitting here and I've got to make phone calls to try and get enough money to stay afloat and, you know, talk to city owners and stuff. And I've been reaching out and talking to a lot of the comics who started out, you know, who are friends, right. uh, you know, people who are, you know, Emmy Award winners, people who have their own shows, all this sort of stuff. It's been really great just, you know, reaching out and touching. Um, boy, I would really like to, uh, you know, just uh, get the, the little comedy club back up so I've got that, uh, that high school. You know, people come in, they learn their craft, they move on, and then uh, yeah. when they got a really good job and a nice family, they come back and say hi to the old teacher. Just get back to doing what you're doing at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love, there's nothing like the feeling of a, a really good comic in a small room on a specific night. You know, it only happens once, and you, you know. You're you, there you to witness forget. the magic, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. We, you know, when you have a, when you have a Bill Burr, when Bill Burr played my place, or Patrice O'Neill, you know, it's, you know, you've got a full house and somebody nobody's ever heard of who is just, Dice Clay, you know, and I was in Buffalo. I opened for Dice the very first time he did the whole show as Dice. Really? Until that point, he had been doing Andrew Silverstein and his impressions. Right, right. Dice so was a character he did, right. on the road, and Buffalo happened to be the first place he played, and he was nervous as all hell. You know, I go in the dressing room, he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever you want. And then he comes into my dressing room and says, look, I'm really sorry. I've never done dice from beginning to end. Right. I don't know if people are going to buy it. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do an extra five minutes so that you can cut your time short if you need to. And he's like, well, thanks. That'd be really nice. Right. And then he went out and did four hours or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> something crazy. Just Once they accepted him, it was easy, right? And yeah, you knew he had something special. Right. Um, but yeah, you see, to see guys like that in a, a small room, Nobody knows who he is, yeah. but you see him on that night and you go like, oh yeah, he's going to be huge. You get to that's, witness the journey, right? Yeah, that, that's why we do it. You know, when you see, you know, it's a Chinese restaurant in Hadley, Mass, and Bill Burr, you know, before he's broken, comes in and rips the place apart. It's, you know, that's, that's what it's about. That's something to witness right there. All right. Well, congratulations on all your success uh, with the Comedy Studio. I wish you many more years of success, and I thank you very much for being on Funny Like Clown Podcast. Rick, take care. Hey, thanks so much. Hope to, hope to be one of your profiles someday. <laughs> all right. Let's hope so someday. All right. Good luck to you, Rick. All right. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Rick Jenkins from the highly successful Boston Area Comedy Club, the Comedy Studio. Uh, you got to check them out, man. Some of the young college kids, the stars of tomorrow, are coming through his club, and you want to check those out. Um, hey, give back. This guy, 21 years, he's been giving back to comedy. He's been giving them a stage, and he's brought you the comedy that you see today. And uh, hey, we wish him many more years of success. What a what a great job he's done up there for the for just the the art of comedy, and that's what it is. It's an art form, and he gives people a place, as he said, to express their art. And once you give people a place to express their art. They go on to big, do big things, and you get satisfaction from knowing, you know, you gave them a place to, to, to work out that to become the big stars that they are. So, uh, hey, keep laughing. Tell somebody a joke at work this week. You're going to tell somebody that joke at work this week. Then they're going to tell somebody else, and it's like a big chain reaction. You keep laughter going, and laughter is the best medicine. We'll see you until next week. Keep laughing, folks. Good night. <laughs>